1: Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Deeply Human, the show about why you do what you do. It's general admission, so sit anywhere you like, but if you sit on top of someone else, you must have their express consent. I am your host, Dessa. And I've got an unusually sexy program queued up this time around, so if you are in the company of pint-sized listeners who don't yet know how they got made, this program might let the reproductive cat out of the bag. Today, we're tackling the question, why do you have sex all the time? Now, those of you who are seated alone may be thinking, lady, you are mistaken because I am definitely not having sex all the time. And those of you sitting with a date might be thinking, That's obvious. We have sex because it feels good. But I assure you, that is only half the story. You are in for an evening of evolution, wonder, and Victorian perversions. We're about to find out why humans have sex at times that our fellow mammals don't. Let the show begin.
0: My name is Steve Gangstead. I am a professor of psychology at the University of New Mexico, and I study sex. I study sexual interest. I study hormonal influences on uh, sex. Perfect. Um, I'm interested in sex.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. To understand the quirks of human sex, we first need to know how it works for most mammals. Here's Steve giving us the lay of the land. Oh, okay let's just call it like it is. Yes, a show about sex is going to have a lot of unintentional dad puns. There will be double and triple entendres, but I'm just going to ask that we call on our better angels and take the high road. Okay, Steve, please tell us about mammal sex.
0: So for most female mammals, it's uh, two or three days out of a cycle that they have sex. And otherwise, they're not willing to have sex with males that Initiated, and they're really not that attractive to males either. Hmm. Males seem to know.
1: And why would most mammals schedule their whole sex life into just a couple of days of the cycle? Well, sex takes time and energy and even risks injury. Most female mammals are only into it during the fertile phase. But how do the males know when those days are?
0: Well, in in some species, like particularly some of our close relatives in the primate order... Females have sexual swellings. They have these Mm -hmm. swellings on their rumps that, to mess, that is, they grow, they they swell when females are sexually active. That said, smell typically trumps that as a cue.
1: Hmm. (laughs) The females of most mammal species are out there clearly signaling when they're conceptive, when they're in the fertile phase. They're giving big, obvious cues in their scent or appearance. The natural question then becomes... Can human dudes tell when lady humans are fertile?
0: There are these uh, sort of colloquial called uh, a stinky t-shirt studies where women have worn t-shirts for a couple nights and they're either conceptive or not conceptive. And men on average do prefer the scent of conceptive females, but they're not that good. (laughs) They're not not that good at telling, you mean? They're getting a very close-up with, you know, they're smelling a t-shirt that's been worn for a couple of days. So in normal, just... Interaction. No, they're not very good.
1: Even women can't sense exactly when we're conceptive, though some women can feel the moment of ovulation. The biological details of our menstrual cycles are hidden even from us. That's why women trying to get pregnant make color code their calendars or download apps like Fertility Friend.
0: The typical term that's used with regard to humans is that we have so called concealed ovulation. So there's not really any real cues of when women are ovulating.
1: Which is weird when you think about it. We're ignorant to one of the most basic bodily functions. There might be some very subtle cues, but for the most part, we're a black box. This concealed ovulation might help explain why humans are game to have sex at any time in a woman's cycle.
0: What you have is what has been termed extended sexuality. (laughs) It sounds funky, but it's, (laughs) (laughs) the extension part is really just referring to the fact that it's extended beyond that conceptive period. So there's non-conceptive sex. There are some mammals who have extended sexuality. And in fact, most primates actually have some period of extended sexuality interestingly Hmm. but as opposed to humans usually in primates it's a few days possibly
1: to the best of our knowledge are we the most extended extended sexuality
0: you can't get any more there might be a species or two that ties us Hmm. (laughs) but we are as extended as you can get
1: so you really are having sex all the time maybe not relative to your friends or your ex-guy and his maddeningly likable new girlfriend. But compared to wild mammals who have never heard of Netflix and might not get to chill, you are. Humans have a lot more sex during phases of the cycle where pregnancy isn't a possibility. It's worth noting that most mammals have different reproductive cycles than we do. Most don't get periods, and sometimes ovulation is even induced by the male, so the systems are different. But still, we're the ones doing it all over the calendar. We're the ones with concealed ovulation and extended sexuality, but of course none of that goes through your mind as you're making eyes at a special someone. Evolution doesn't have to shape your thoughts to shape your behavior. Most of us are driven to have sex just because it feels good. And with that, let's welcome Dr. David Putz to stage from the Department of Anthropology at Penn State. Both David and his wife are sex researchers.
2: In fact, we've published on orgasm together. Wow. So funny enough, I met her at a sex conference, and she had just presented a paper on the genetics of the female orgasm. So after her talk, we started talking about the, you know, the, the topic <laughs> and the science and yada, yada. We have three kids.
1: One of David's specialties is the female orgasm, which actually poses something of a mystery for academics.
2: Nobody really knows what women's orgasm is for. And there's a lot of debate about whether it's for anything at all, whether it might just be a non-functional byproduct. And one suggestion is that it's a byproduct of orgasm in men and that really in men, that's where the adaptation lies.
1: Um, I think I I just for a second because I think to listeners who who aren't looking at this through an evolutionary lens. Mm-hmm. The idea that, like, we don't know what a female orgasm is for. I think a lot of hands oh, might right. shoot up yeah. in the air like, yeah, yeah, yeah. dude, I know what it's for. <laughs> if, you,
2: <yeah. laughs> so, if you have to ask what it's for, then you're not doing it right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, have you ever seen a female orgasm?
1: When scientists say they don't know what it's for, they mean they're not sure how it might help us to survive and pass on our genes. Like, how could orgasms increase a person's likelihood of having kids and grandkids? Well, the dude's orgasm helps deliver sperm to where it has to go. So, okay, we can see how that helps in procreation. Some scientists think female orgasms don't have any similar purpose. They just developed as a happy accident.
2: The common analogy that's used is male nipples, that you can have an adaptation in one sex. So you've got a functional trait, in one sex that just some vestiges of it occur in the other sex.
1: I think some dudes might be thinking, no, dude, my nipples are awesome. Like, yeah, right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying?
2: Like, yeah. They are not um,
1: functionless, bruv.
2: So, yeah, they, they hold up my nipple ring.
1: <laughs>
2: yeah, so by function, an evolutionary biologist means that there was some way in which it contributed to reproductive success ancestrally either by increasing survival or by increasing you know mating success or you know survival of offspring or something like that. Mm-hmm. You could use your nipples for whatever you want. Um, but that doesn't mean that they evolved for that purpose.
1: But there's another camp that think female orgasms do serve a purpose of their own. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you the UPSuck theory. The idea here is that the contractions of the female orgasm actually draw semen into the female reproductive tract, where it has a better chance of fertilizing an egg. To test this idea, researchers have dosed women with oxytocin, a hormone that triggers the muscle contractions during orgasm.
2: Two different labs found that women who went into the lab, those that were treated with oxytocin, that that caused the transport of a fluid, the same viscosity as semen, up into the oviducts. And the closer the women were to ovulation, the more of that transport was just into the oviduct where the egg was coming down.
1: So is there essentially an argument to be made that if a woman orgasms with a partner, she's more likely to be impregnated by him than when she has sex where she does not orgasm?
2: Yes, yes. Okay. But we don't really know that. It's clearly not necessary, right? right? I mean, plenty of women have kids and have never had an orgasm.
1: The upsuck theory is still hotly debated. Other experiments have yielded results that don't support the idea. And so far, no one's run a big study to find out if women's orgasms during actual sex are more likely to lead to a pregnancy in the real world. But upsuck isn't the only possible purpose for the female orgasm.
2: The intense feeling of pleasure, the idea that that has no function at all, it's hard to swallow because, uh, oh, jeez, I shouldn't say that's that, <laughs> so that in the but... context of... <laughs>
1: Come on, David. Better angels. Let's keep it classy.
2: It's hard, it's hard to believe because you would think that that kind of intense feeling would have some effect on behavior, right? Mm-hmm. It seems likely, and there's some evidence that this is the case, that if women have more orgasms with a partner, then they feel more emotionally close, and that that would then tend to sort of strengthen a, a long-term pair bond.
1: So the contractions of a female orgasm might improve the likelihood of fertilization. Or maybe the pleasure is the purpose and that it strengthens the emotional bonds between sexual partners.
2: There are different hypotheses, but they're not mutually exclusive.
1: Steve Gangstad, the dude who told us about mammal sex at the very start of this program, says that our concealed ovulation may also encourage pair bonds between mates. And here's why. In 95% of mammal species, males don't care for their young at all. But humans take a lot of work to raise, and concealed ovulation may be a strategy to help get dads involved. This takes a little bit of explaining, so bear with me. Picture a world where it's somehow very obvious when human women are in the fertile phase of their cycle. They act a certain way, or they look a certain way, or they only whistle show tunes, whatever. All the guys would be interested in mating at this time, the proverbial milkshake bringing all the boys to the yard. But with an abundance of boys, and only so much milkshake, not every dude would get the chance to copulate.
0: Males are not of equal ability to be able to take advantage of that. There are some that are going to be more dominant, and they can monopolize the fertile phase matings.
1: The alpha males could just chase the other suitors out of the yard.
0: Most offspring are sired by just a few dominant males.
1: Then when the lady next door enters her fertile phase, The dominant males would head over to her yard, leaving the pregnant female to raise the young alone. But this situation doesn't serve the genetic interests of the female all that well. For her, it'd be better if both parents cared for the baby, improving the kids' chances of growing up and one day mating, too.
0: The problem with those dominant males is they're doing just fine.
1: Caring for babies would take away from the dominant males' mating time, which is their best bet for genetic success. And so to mate with males who would provide care for her young, female bodies evolved to hide their fertile phases.
0: By concealing ovulation, then the male, the dominant males can't just guard. So that's an argument for the evolution of concealed ovulation that arose early 1980s, late 1970s.
1: The alpha males can't fend off other suitors from all the females all the time. So other males get the chance to mate. And these non-dominant males... They're not the high octane studs who can fight off rivals and mate with all the females. Their best chance at getting their genes out there is to lock it down, to form pair bonds, and invest in the kids to give them a better shot at growing up and continuing the line.
0: The top theory, I think, is that extended sexuality is about biparental care. It co evolved with biparental care in humans, and that extended sexuality is partly about strengthening that pair bond, ensuring investment from a primary partner.
2: I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am, like I am where it is. This isn't going to work.
1: In conversations like these, it can be tempting to try to retrofit the whole world with an evolutionary explanation. But not every feature of our body or our behavior is perfectly adapted to our environments. Evolution works on chance mutations, and we're just the best models that have emerged so far. And also, responsible scientists need more evidence than... Yeah, that would totally make sense. What do we know for sure? About extended sexuality in humans, if anything.
0: Well, <laughs> being a scientist, we're very, very cautious about what we say that we know for sure, because uh, it's tough to prove stuff.
1: And that, my friends, is the full and complete story of human sexuality. We ovulate in secret, we get it on all the time, and female orgasms are hella mysterious. Okay, let's bring up the house lights. Drive safe, everybody. Tip your bartenders, and good night. Nope. Wrong. Stop. (laughs) Obviously, we cannot end the show that way. We can't talk about all this sex we're having, only in terms of genetics and reproduction and upsuck. Our horizontal lives are shaped by culture, too. So let's pan out for some much-needed context. So far, we've been using the terms male and female as absolute and discreet, which isn't how we consider them in the real and complicated world. We've also been pretty heteronormative. Let's bring in sex historian Kate Lister for a quick vocab check on that last term.
3: Can you tell me what the term heteronormative means? It's when all of our assumptions and our biases are coming from a place where we are making penis and vagina heterosexual sex The default, and everything else around that is not the default.
1: Homosexual behaviour has been abundantly documented all over the animal kingdom, from swans to lions to lizards. And sex isn't only procreative either.
3: If it's about making babies, then how do we account for masturbation, oral sex, anal sex, same-sex sex?
1: Kate is a researcher at Leeds Trinity University in England. In her book, A Curious History of Sex, she documents all sorts of sexual fantasies and fears
3: and prohibitions throughout the ages. The actual act of sex itself is pretty standard, but what changes and what's different is people's attitudes to it, the rituals that go around it, the things that are shamed, the things that are acceptable, things that are condemned. The Puritans who who left our jolly shores and turned up on yours bringing with them sexual repression and shame and mad hats with buckles on. That was, (laughs) they were really caught up about sexuality. And the Puritans, they were a a movement that started largely out of this denying pleasure, but a very excessive and strict Mm. version of Puritanism that rejected what it thought of as Catholic decadence. And sex was something very much that they wanted to repress.
1: But a whole society can't just go cold turkey
3: you have to have some sex, otherwise we're all just going to die out. (laughs) So then it becomes about controlling the act very, very carefully. And the Puritans were sort of very much in that vein. You could have sex, but you couldn't enjoy it. Mm. It was for making babies only.
1: Victorian England has become sort of like the poster child
3: for sexual hang-ups. There is a real emphasis on trying to stop people, women and men, but particularly men from masturbating. And what you've got is anti-masturbation devices that came around in sort of the mid-19th century and the idea was to stop quote-unquote nocturnal emissions. So that's a wet dream. So what you get is these rings, uh, spermatozoa rings, which basically were tied on the penis but had really sharp, jagged teeth on the inside. So you'd put the penis into it and then the idea would be that if he got an erection in the middle of the night, the teeth would bite down and wake him up before he could lose his special seed.
1: Okay, so so I am currently looking at your hardcover book and there is like a pen
3: and ink drawing
1: mm. that's labeled four pointed urethral ring.
3: Yep. Yep. And it's it, quite a horrendous thing, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's one of those things it's like even as even as a lady the legs cross a little bit. Isn't it's, it? It's yes. that
3: it's that awful. That, it,
1: yeah. It looks like a napkin ring. Yep. That has spikes on the inside of the circumference.
3: Yeah. That's pretty much it. Yeah. That's yeah. a
1: bummer. Kate. It's, it's a real bummer. a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> but Victorians also produced a bunch of kinky porn. Like they're really into stuff like whips and lashes. So there's this sort of choreographed hypocrisy about what's publicly forbidden, but still happens in private.
3: Look at our own society. You know, porn. You know, go, I don't watch. Porn, I don't masturbate. Of course you do. We just don't talk about it in polite society.
1: With the passage of time and a better understanding of our own bodies, our attitudes about sex and sexuality have changed in big, like head-spinning ways. The pill sparked a revolution.
3: It just radicalized everything because suddenly you could control your own reproduction. And it placed it in the hands of women as, as well. That's amazing. I do get asked a lot, was there ever a period in history when we had it all figured out, when when everyone was just cavorting in a shame-free mm-hmm. sexual <laughs> paradise? And the answer to the question is, is, the closest we've ever come is probably now. Mm. It, and Which feels really uncomfortable because like we look around and just go, are you freaking kidding me? Like There are still places around the world where people will be killed for their sexuality. But the fact that there is a movement to not shame people, to not execute people because of their sexuality, or chemically castrate them, or, do you know, So mm-hmm. we are the closest now that we've been to getting it all figured out. And that's quite scary.
1: Humans have culture and birth control, religious mandates, and weaponized napkin rings. So does that put us above the fray of evolutionary forces? I'm betting that when researcher Steve goes to a restaurant with friends... Everybody at the table is fascinated by his work, but few are really convinced it applies to their own lives. Do you ever talk to people who kind of dismiss your work as reductive? Like, oh, that's the way it works in animals, but that's not the way it works for us.
0: Well, certainly some people, what they say is, oh, the magic is gone. Hmm. But I don't see it that way. The thing is, the magic is what you feel, but what's under the magic? What's giving rise to all this? The love's there. The question is, why is the love there? It's at a different level of analysis.
1: The way that we experience lust and love and jealousy and intimacy, they feel so real, so fundamental to our humanity that I don't think we want them undermined by chemical accounts We don't want to hear our most poignant experiences boil down to only genes and reproduction. But I agree with Steve. There are motors to the magic, and learning how the gears fit doesn't have to break the spell. If concealed ovulation encourages pair bonds, hey, lucky us. A proclivity to love one another is written in the code of our design. If our species has evolved to have sex all around the cycle, hey, lucky us. Put a date night on the calendar. Any day will do. And that concludes our show. Be safe. Be kind to one another. Maybe make a milkshake. See who comes around. And for the final bows, Deeply Human is a BBC World Service and American Public Media co-production with iHeartMedia. And hosted by me, Dessa. Next time on Deeply Human, our topic is standing in line and why it turns us into low-rage monsters. There is a meme that's been going around. It has a picture of Beyoncé, and it says, Why aren't you Beyoncé? She has the same 24 hours you do. Uh, and I don't think that's accurate at all. We all do have, objectively, 24 hours, but we are often forced to use those hours in very distinct ways. Uh, I think about people who have very long commutes to their second job, and time is very different for them. The people in a grocery store line who have to you know, use food stamps or cash and count coupons, they're using their time at that checkout stand very differently than I have to.